Welcome to podcast number four of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is June 18th, 2018. I am your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest today is CPA, writer, film producer, and professor, Dr. Kelly Richmond Pope. Kelly Richmond Pope is an associate professor in the School of Accountancy and MIS at DePaul University. She received her doctorate in accounting from Virginia Tech and is a licensed certified public accountant. She worked in the forensic accounting practice at KPMG LLP on anti-money laundering engagements, insurance fraud investigations, and fraud risk management. Her fraud research has been published in leading academic journals, and she is a freelance writer for Forbes.com, The Daily Beast, and The Washington Post. She began filming her documentary, All the Queen's Horses, shortly after the 2012 arrest of Rita Crunwell of Dixon, Illinois. Kelly has appeared on Inside Edition and Discovery ID's docudrama, Forbidden, as a subject matter expert discussing the Crunwell case, where a small town city comptroller was accused of stealing $53 million, or about $37,000 a day, from the town. All the Queen's Horses was a 2014 finalist for the Tribeca Film Institute grant and is available online now. It is my pleasure to introduce Kelly Richmond Pope. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, uh, how are things out in the Windy City today? Well, today the sun is out, so that's all I can say. <laughs> you never know if it's going to be out. So, is it uh, spring? Is it springtime in Chicagoland? It's springtime today. It could snow tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can happen off of Lake Michigan. So that's for sure. Amen. Now, as uh, as we're recording this, today is uh, April twenty sixth. 2018, and uh, spring has finally arrived in the uh, bucolic town of Milford, Connecticut, where I reside. And actually today, I was seated, seated on a park bench in my city center, a town that was founded in 1639, and was watching uh, from Amazon uh, all the Queen's horses. And my audience already knows about this during the intro. And uh, in the previous uh, podcast, I had alerted them that we would be talking about this. So I'd like you just to uh, take a moment and tell me the story of what happened in another little town, this one being uh, the town of Dixon, Illinois. Well, their city comptroller, a very trusted employee, uh, embezzled $53 million over 20 years, and no one knew it. So she did this in plain sight. And um, in one sentence, I can tell you what that 71 minutes is trying to uncover and answer for the viewer. Because the question that's, that should be burning in your mind after you watch the film is, how does one person do something like this? And so uh, 
that's what that's what that's the the fifty three million dollar question, like you like to call it. Okay, and not the sixty four thousand dollar question, but the fifty three million dollar. That's a staggering amount of money. How long would, did the fraud uh, go on for? The fraud went on for over twenty years. Um, it was undiscovered, so pretty long time. And and during that time period, uh, from what I understand, uh, was it was it a, uh, a I don't want to use it a Jekyll and Hyde experience, but was uh, the comptroller um, acting like a, a small town city comptroller during the day, daytime and during the week, and then had a different persona uh, nights and weekends? Sure. So she was um, Rita Cronwell was one of the number one quarter horse breeders in the country. So she um, lived a, a double life. You know, this hardworking, trusted employee by day and this lavish, extravagant horse trainer breeder by night. And so the two worlds didn't communicate. So it's easy for her to live this double life for a very long time. And that's that's just astounding. Now, I'm not in a horse community and I, I hear about the Kentucky Derby every year and I hear who wins it. But um, what is a quarter horse trainer? What and what's the end goal of a quarter horse trainer? What's the what's the whole thing behind that? I can't because it sounded like it, it became a, a, a big, huge um, business for. I think the end goal is just to show your horse. So it's just um, showing a, a really strong, well-bred horse is like the horse itself is your trophy. So the end goal is just to prance around in this ring and show that you bred the finest horse, very similar to what you see at dog shows, because, you know, you're just really showing off the dog. They're not really showing you any um, agility or, or any innate qualities that they have. You're just really looking to see how nice their teeth look and how beautiful their coats are or how they walk or prance. So very similar to the, um, horse industry and but not these these horses weren't uh she wasn't uh, in this to produce uh, winners of the kentucky derby this wasn't for speed or or uh, stud service this was for a show yes this is definitely for show okay um a little known world for me honestly but i guess for her it was it was her life and uh something that she aspired to and, and got a lot of uh uh happiness out of uh, what attracted you to investigate this story and, and why did you choose to use a documentary film format to share your investigation? Well, I, one of the things that attracted me was just the sheer amount of money that was stolen, the, um, the number of years that it went on. And I think that um, documentary filmmaking is a very important format for people to learn information from. So I didn't want to sensationalize it by um, turning it into a feature film where I'm hiring actors. I wanted to keep the seriousness of the issue at hand. So I wanted, I thought the documentary filmmaking format would, would lend itself to that the best. And, and had you been a, a documentary filmmaker before this? I apologize if I should know this. Um, I had done a documentary before um, called Crossing the Line, Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crimes, and, um, but, and enjoyed that process. So thought, you know, maybe it'd be good to try this um, again and, and talk about it this way. And how many hats did you wear for this uh, production of All the Queen's Horses? I was the director and the producer. And I, I guess you were also the interviewer on the other side yeah, of the camera. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. So, mm-hmm. And there were times when um, we could hear your voice asking questions and then you did voiceovers during some of the uh, graphics to show how the scam 
worked and how I think and how it compared with, I believe, another scam, the one in D.C., which was only only forty eight million. Dollars. Yeah. All right. I had made a mistake and I'm glad that you corrected me. Uh, I had made a mistake during my um, promos for this that it was only fifty one million dollars and that I uh, described um, the person uh, Rita Brunwell as being a city clerk and she's actually a, a city comp troller. And uh, if you could just take a moment to tell me what a comptroller's role is in a uh, small town or any you know, town, uh, I, I'd, be, I'd like to know about that a little bit so that my uh, my listeners can get an idea of how the money could be possibly flowing through her coffers and then into her uh, her her official coffers and then out into her personal coffers. Well, uh, the comptroller is a person that manages, organizes the money, you know, the budgets and everything that you need. Um, it's the, the, the person that does the fiscal oversight of the town. So that's a very important role if you think about it, because at the end of the day, everything comes back to, do you have enough money to do whatever service you want to do in your local community? And so oftentimes there is a person that is managing the purse strength behind that, and that would be your city comptroller. Okay. So this, this fraud went on from the early 90s until when she was caught. And what year was that? Uh, so it started really um, the late 80s, and she was caught in 2012. Okay. And then, um, so obviously, um, first thing that comes to my mind, uh, $53 million of infrastructure wasn't taken care of. Uh, maybe uh, personnel uh, raises were um, uh, uh, not furloughed, but not not done on a more frequent basis. Uh, pensions uh, were not added to. Benefits weren't added to. Uh, city departments lacked for uh, some basics, I would think, during that time period. And uh, generally, you, you spent a lot of time in that town uh, during the filming. How did it how, did it look like uh, it could have used uh, 51 million or excuse me, 53 million? dollars during that uh, 20 some year period? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's a, a pretty large amount of money missing out of a budget year on year after year after year. Um, but what's what's remarkable about the town is how they were able to manage without it. And so it also shows you how nimble the town are, uh, ad- adjusted to the lack of resources for such a very long time. And Okay, and then how much have they been able to recover since uh, since the fraud was uncovered and the uh, arrest? And, and how was it finally adjudicated? Can you tell me? Sure. So, um, a city clerk by the name of Kathy Swanson is the person that is known to be the whistleblower, and noticed that there were some outflows coming out of an account that she was not aware of, and um, she raised the question uh, to the mayor. The mayor then took it to the FBI. And the FBI launched an investigation. And um, so Rita uh, was sentenced to jail. She was uh, it was sentenced to 19 years and seven months. And um, they recovered 40 million of the 53 million dollars in a civil suit. And um, the three parties that paid was the audit firm, the bank and a sole practitioner that worked with the audit firm. Gotcha. And and a lot of that's paid by insurance, but it doesn't show up uh, in the final paperwork. It, it, it comes through the, the actual defendants. Sure. So, um, yeah, the, I'm sure there were insurance policies that that uh, footed the bill. But um, to the average person, um, we just know that, um, you know, that what the recovery amount was. But, you know, what actually happens and the reason why we should care and not think that, you know, the insurance just handled it all right. is because when insurance pays out, 
those the increase in premiums are passed over to the consumer. So, you know, I think it's something that we should all care and pay attention to when this happens. Oh, no, I, I understand that. And uh, part of my uh, discussion with you before we got on uh, to the actual podcast was that for many years, I had been an insurance fraud investigator. And during that time period, I had been uh, and still am a um, certified fraud examiner and uh, a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And for me, uh, knowing that uh, the cost uh, of fraud gets passed out amongst the population, either through increased taxes or increased insurance premiums or both, uh, you know, that that's that's true. And I think that our listeners have to appreciate that, that it's not a victimless crime. Oh, no. Not at all. So. Uh, and how much was, were, were they able to recover from uh, Miss Rita? Well, Rita, um, after selling her assets and um, real estate, personal assets, um, they were able to recover $10 million. Um, but she still owes $96 million um, to the city of Dixon because she was um, penalized for just being a bad person, stealing the money. So she had a a judgment uh, and a judgment placed on her in the amount of an additional fifty three point seven million dollars. So fifty three point seven plus fifty three point seven minus the ten that um, they received from her personal assets leaves her with about owing oh, about ninety six million dollars. Oh, that's a little bit of coin. That's for sure. That's mind boggling. But hey, that's uh, that's the game she decided to play. Absolutely. That's the game she decided to play. Now, um, there was an opportunity for you, many opportunities for you to interview her. And during the film, I noticed that um, uh, there was some uh, news news reporters putting microphones in front of her face. Tell me about your decision uh, or how it came to be that you that she was not a subject of, of the interview of, in this documentary. So one of the things that you just asked was um, I had numerous opportunities to interview her. And so I want to correct you on that because um, you I've reached out to her. But the only way you get to interview her is if she agrees to do the interview. Right. And so um, she always uh, declined and she had the right to do that. And so one of the difficulties with documentary filmmaking is. You can only tell the story that people are willing to share with you. So um, would it have been nice to have Rita? Sure. But that would have definitely been a different film. And one of the things that I wanted to focus on was really pulling the story away from Rita and her impact and what she did is the focus of the film, not necessarily the Rita Cronwell story. That film is still out there for somebody that wants to make that. But um, this All the Queen's Horses really focuses on what happens when this happens in your workplace, in your town, in your nonprofit organization. When fraud is around you and it, and it definitely surpri- sur- surrounds you, what do you do? And so hopefully this film can give some insight as to what Dixon did and how Dip- Dixon experienced this tragedy. Got it. You were the main interview for the main interviewer for this film. And, and, sure. how did, and how did you grow in the art and craft of interviewing from that experience? Well, I um, I think as an educator, we are naturally gifted at asking questions because we're always probing on trying to, to help a student learn and take them from point A to point Z. So I think um, just from my experience in the classroom, I've just learned how to develop interview skills and um, ask either pinpointed closed questions or very open-ended questions that can help lead a person uh, to open up and share something very personal with you. So I just learned just from being an educator. 
Okay. Now, but there, that, that little extra special sauce in, in being able to get Kathy Swanson to open up, I know that wasn't an easy interview. So can you tell me a little bit about how that interplay took place and how you were able to gain her confidence and be able to have her speak uh, as she did on the on screen? Well, I had been trying to reach Kathy for years and um, she had never responded to my messages. And um, it was through the help of Paula Meyer, who um, took Rita's job and is now the Lee County Treasurer. She was just elected a few weeks back. Um, she actually uh, made the connection for me to talk with uh, Kathy. And I just let Kathy know how important her role was and that people could really learn from her. And um, and after a f- just a, about a 15, 20 minute conversation, she agreed. And so um, that's how that started. And uh, Kathy really was an integral part of the film, because once you get beyond the question of how did the fraud happen? The next main question is, well, who discovered it? And that's always a really big deal. And so I knew that Kathy's interview would be important. Right. I, I do interviews on the street. I talk to people. I knock on their doors. I talk to them. I, I'm a guy standing on their doorstep. I've got a, a notebook in my hand and I'm asking them questions about something they might have witnessed or been a party to or under, you know, something where I need to gather information. That's my world. But I do not have when I'm standing there, I do not have a, uh, somebody standing there with a boom mic over my head, right? And or a camera behind me while I'm knocking on their door talking to them. So I thought that my question to you was being a, a, a documentarian and a person asking interviews, how how did the, the presence of the boom mic and the camera equipment uh, you know, impact on your uh, questioning? Did it uh, chill your questioning? Did it cause, you know, people to get nervous? Uh, was it something that, you know, you had to spend more time with them before they could, you know, would feel uh, uh, relaxed on camera? These are just questions I'm, I'm posing to you. Oh, no, I don't think it, it never, it never um, created an obstacle at all. Um, I think that if you could, if you ask a good question, and if you're clear, and if you feel comfortable, then people often feel comfortable with you. And so that's sort of always been my approach. Um, so I never had a problem. The camera and the boom mic and the, the presence of the equipment never seemed to make people nervous. But um, I, I think that I really tried to do my best to make them feel comfortable. And and in this case, it's a documentary. Okay. I'm not getting the syllables on the sense on the right syllables. It's a, it's a documentary. Doc. Can you say it? Documentary? Yep, there you go. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm the one getting tongue-tied here. But anyway, uh, so there is no second takes. This is what they say, and this is how you go about it. And maybe you just want to make sure you get the sound levels right and the picture's good, and, and that's about it, and you roll. Right. Yeah. So um, then there was the talking with the FBI. Now, that I'm sure that's a whole totally different dynamic than it was dealing with uh, 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 the woman that uncovered the fraud. T- tell me a little bit of how that came to be and how you were able to get them on camera. Well, it was um, at a holiday party that I just let them know that, you know, I really needed their assistance. They were integral in the investigation and their voice was definitely missing. And I would really appreciate if they would consider um, doing the interview. And um, after a few weeks, the request was actually granted. And um, that's how that happened. And, And I'm really glad because I think that they offered a piece that was very, very important to just the understanding of the evolution of the investigation. Okay, and it sounds to me that in both uh, Swanson and the FBI's interviews, both that you you know you had to be persistent but pleasant. Is that a nice um, combination? Am I am I portraying that correctly? 
Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, and it's not oh they didn't want to talk to me and that's that that's that doesn't work. I know that uh, when I'm t- uh, for my listeners' benefit that there's times that you know you can go back and talk to people and you can ask them again and again, but you have to do it you know as as was we as I said persistently and but pleasantly and hoping that they'll they'll come to see why you need to get the information that you need. So. Um, you know, one of the harder questions I ask my uh, guests when they're, they're with me is in what what, in your opinion, do you think makes the difference between a good investigator or a good interviewer and great interviewing a great investigation? Is that something that you feel comfortable tackling? I think a, I think a great investigator is um, a person that has an inquisitive mind and you have to leave your personal biases at the door. You can't go into a situation thinking that you already know the answer, but you have to be open to allow the interviewee to take you on whatever journey they want to take on. And, and, and hopefully it's the truth, but sometimes it's just important to let them talk and share. And, um, I think that's what makes, um, a good, for a good interview. Um, in terms of an investigation, I think that your ability to, um, not fall victim to your own just personal beliefs or personal experience is the best thing. I think fraud investigators can sometimes feel like they know everything. And so sometimes, you know, it might it might hinder you to find out some facts that could be just staring you in the face. So I think looking at every investigation like a brand new investigation and trying not to bring too much of your outside experience in um, to allow you to see the newness and the uniqueness that a case can show you. Another thing, too, is uh, the preparation that goes in uh, before you even start the interview. And uh, I, I think you just touched upon that a little bit as more of a co- comprehensive review of what the, the, the investigator's skill sets are. But I think uh, preparation so that you're, you're, you don't have a, a bias ahead of time, that you can be open to other ideas, but you know your, your, your case or you know your situation well enough that you can be flexible to hear uh, alternate uh, explanations as to what's going on. Is that a fair assumption? That's a very fair assumption. Okay. So the question is, how can my listeners learn more about the movie, All the Queen's Horses? Well, um, All the Queen's Horses is currently available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, well, Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, DirecTV, Dish. Um, your local uh, cable station, I'm sure it carries it. Um, and if you check the All the Queen's Horses Film.com website, um, we are still doing local screenings. Um, and actually, right before we started talking, I'm in the process of planning a, a screening in Pekin, Illinois. Um, if you follow the news, Rita Cronwell is now at a federal correction facility in Pekin, Illinois. Mm. And um, we're, we're going to do a, a screening at the local public library in Pekin um, just to let the community know who is now in their town and why she's there. OK, that that would I think they would be very interested to hear that. And uh and I think that would be uh, well received by little town. I think a lot of little towns should have this screened uh, just as a reminder that they have to um, go over their checklist of how to keep um, different responsibilities separated, uh, make sure and make sure that uh, there's more than one set of eyes on what's going on. And um, and that some and that check authority, check writing authority is um Bifurcated. Am I saying that word correctly? That um, somebody on uh, on one hand has to approve the check, that, but that somebody else has to write it. 
so that uh, there's no um, no one has total control over it. Am I am I right saying that? Did I say, did I say sure. that correctly? Okay. Um, I, I, it goes back to my um, high school accounting days. That's been a while, so <laughs> I, I just wanted to make sure I was. And also, you know, some of the things that I read in the um, the ACFE uh, bulletin, the broad bulletin that comes out every every month. So, uh, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm trying to do some interviews. Um, there's a person in my hometown um, in Durham, North Carolina, that is um, has been convicted of falsifying tax returns for clients. So I'm trying to see if I can set up an interview with her to understand her case more. Um, and um, I'm just finishing up a, a case um, a, a, that I did with a former colleague of mine who is uh, being sentenced for mortgage fraud on Friday, uh, Thursday, this coming Thursday, May 5th. Mm. And then I um, have uh, six um, bankers boxes in my uh, university office um, from a church fraud investigation that I'm retracing the steps of a treasurer who embezzled $150,000 from the church and actually shut the church down. So those are the things I'm working on right now. That's very ambitious. I got to tell you, that's a lot of work. Um, Kelly, uh, how can my audience reach out to you if you'd like to receive uh, queries? Sure. Well, my um, email is easy to remember. It's Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at KeliosDigital.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kelly R. Pope or on Instagram at Kelly R. Pope. That's great. And if, um, for the email, uh, can you spell the Helios for me? Because uh, that's kind of a, a foreign word to me. I apologize. Sure. It's H-E-L-I-O-S, digital, D-I-G-I-T-A-L. Dot com. Okay. Kelly, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, I hope to, uh, I hope you well with the, all the Queen's horses. I think you did a, from what I can see in the, in the film, I think it's uh, impeccably done, tastefully done, well uh, edited. Um, uh, everything comes together very well. And it's, I think it should be uh, required watching in any uh, uh, accountancy ethics course or in any fraud examiner's uh, class as well. So that's just my two cents as your humble investigator. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our next podcast guest will be Rich Robertson. Rich Robertson has had two successful careers. First, as an investigative journalist and a TV investigative reporter for 28 years. He was the editor of three Arizona Republic investigative projects that were finalists for Pulitzer Prizes. He was also an Emmy award-winning investigative reporter for KPHO-TV Channel 5 and KPNX-TV Channel 12. For the past 18 years, Rich is a licensed private investigator. He is the owner of R3 Investigations in Arizona. He is a certified legal investigator, one of only 74 in the world. He has been the lead investigator on hundreds of complex criminal and civil cases, including numerous death penalty cases at the trial, sentencing, and post-conviction levels. This is an episode not to be missed. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do, and they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. 
I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friend. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com, J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.